and I'll just give you a brief intro into Art Music Lit Space. Uh, it's kind of started as a response to the uh, COVID-19 restrictions that um, came with the stay-at-home orders. Um, first, uh, San Francisco and then Sacramento a day later um, decided to uh, restrict people's movement uh, outside of essential um, activities, which you all know. Um, I quickly kind of, maybe I felt a little uh, depression and anxiety and uh, maybe um, was wondering how it was possible that we could have like a national emergency when everyone around me didn't really seem sick. But um, I kind of got over the initial shock and kind of went into production mode. But I shifted my production from my, my practice to uh, a community practice. Uh, I wanted a way to stay active during the shutdown and also engage other artists in this process of uh, exhibition, presentation, and uh, kind of continue my curatorial practice. So I got in contact with uh, Joy Miller and Derek Kwan. And so we've been working together since um, late March, coming up with ideas to bring Art Music Lit Space um, together. Uh, we put out a call basically online and within a couple weeks, you know, I had 20, 22 uh, submissions uh, for this site. Um, the deadline was uh, April 3rd and everything was organized, written and coded in four days and the site went live and launched on April 7th, as you know. A um, couple of updates, uh, Art Music Lit Space was having some lagging issues because I was on a shared server. So now it's on a dedicated server, so there shouldn't be any uh, downtime or download issues with the site. So uh, depending on how many visitors the site is getting, and it's getting pretty good, it's getting like 163 uh, impressions about a week. So I think that's pretty good, especially compared to my personal blog sites. Um, so there shouldn't be any issues with lagging. Uh, I'm going to go through the uh, itinerary. And as people join the um, reception, I will be admitting them into this into the um, reception. Uh, for now, we'll just continue with um, the participants participants that we have. So the events are, um, I'm going to go through the curator statement and introduce Derek and Joy. Uh, Joy is going to read the Art Music Lit Space mission statement. I'm gonna go through introducing the artists um, and whoever is attending, uh, please feel free to say hello. And if you want to say a few short things like uh, your name uh, or just say hi and um, say what uh, your practice is involved in as far as what medium, that'd be great. We're going to have uh, four artist talks tonight. It's going to be uh, Chris Herman, Christina McPhee, Muzi Liro, and Xenia Smith. Uh, after that, Joy Miller is going to provide her curator statement and followed by Philip Brubaker uh, giving a short talk on his practice and reading an excerpt from The Waffler. We're going to have a breakout session after that where we're going to split up into smaller groups and Joy, 
Derek and myself are going to be in individual rooms. So this is kind of like a chance for us to just say hi, have brief conversations, ask any additional questions and so forth. After that, at around nine-ish, nine, 10, nine, 15, uh, Derek is going to uh, provide his curator statement and Boris Alanu is gonna join us and give a short talk on his music ecology practice and give a short musical performance. And that will wrap up our programming for the evening. So I will um, jump into this statement, <clears throat> which is on the site. And um, I just wanna share that we have been getting some pretty good um, responses as far as the marketing that has been conducted. Right now we're averaging about 55 to 60% to open rate on the email blast that I've been sending. So without further ado, um, what becomes of us when we lose what we thought we knew about who we are? Coteries of feathered and fur animals walk the once busy streets, the rains return. What we need to fill ourselves is no longer in the place where we return, like loving children, to foster the emotion of care and the care of the so close memory. Many fathers take up space now, mothers at home are tending the fringe of folds. People in places close to us all are struggling. We are struggling. What was once given now like dreams lost, children in their simple way teach the meaning of acceptance in a time where what is to be expected is ne'er quite known. Love and isolation brings together artists whose work caresses an edge of meaning, loss, reverie, and the subtle, now more tender expression of experience we are all coming to embody. Where is touch in the age of distance? Where is the feeling when to breach too close offends the turnstile, the encroached demarcation? With contrast, they expel fear with mark, contour, and line. A connection here is made. Look close at this work and you will find longing, rich, emotive, with a sensation of which the hand may meet the body. From icons to abstractions, emptiness to fields of full color, and again, with gestures that reflect the contemporary, the assessed, you will gather unto you a glimpse of what it is to have been touched, turned over, folded within, into oneself. Be keen in the endeavor of questions. But knowing is of little importance when the unknown, the uncertain, the rife doubt of belonging is so deep. We now know as a global civilization that just as before the day I transgressed into clouds, <clears throat> that many of us are still discovering our place in a world where delineation is so imperative to economy, that the sun does not shine with the same permanence across the globe. And we are moved in this discovery, just as I am moved by the artists in love and isolation to learn that it takes people, however distant, and it takes compassion, however late in coming, to realize the potential of loss and the understanding it bursts and the privilege and responsibility it takes to be complete. The color is robust with citrus and the irises glint with humor, critical discourse, audacity and courage. This work brings a continuity to our lives when there's little but the search for meaning. I say, look, 
I say there's meaning in our full individual and collective lives. And with sensitivity and dedication, like the artists in this exhibition, we will all find our place where we are proud but not prideful, confident but not careless, and just enough emboldened to reach where we are now, just learning where we can extend, and find that we are able, adaptable, prepared for our day's task. So I'm going to introduce uh, my partners in this uh, project, uh, Derek Kwan and Joy Miller. Hello. There's Derek. And uh, uh, Derek Kwan is an electronic musician, percussionist, and digital artist exploring the expressive capabilities of computer technology through interactive media. Joy Miller is an artist in Western Washington. She holds graduate degrees in art studio from UC Davis and in the humanities from the University of Chicago. She's presently under quarantine with much of the world. So Joy. Um, All right, I'm gonna read the mission statement for Art Music Lit Space which serves as a locus for artists, curators, writers, lookers, listeners, feelers, and thinkers to show, share, and connect despite the nearly global closure of physical exhibitions, exhibition spaces such as studios, galleries, basements, museums, schools, art fairs, fields, etc. AML space seeks not simply to fill the chasm so suddenly imposed by social distancing measures but to provide opportunity for a constellation community to probe the chasm together apart. Great, thank you. Uh, so I want to um, do a quick uh, introduction of the artists. Um, let's see if I could do this real quick. After I read these names, if you're attending, if you want to just like say hi and say a few things um, about your practice, that'd be great. Uh, so, can you see my screen? I can. Okay. Let's go here. Have Forrest Alia and Boris Alanou. Miguel Andrasani. Abby Arbach. Philip Brubaker. Emily Clark Kramer. Jody Connolly, Aurora Dalsk, Rachel Dean, Noah Green, Mercy Hawkins, Chris Herman, Katie Holden, Kristen Ho Hugh, Brooklyn Johnson, Casey Young, 
Jacob Lewis, Natalia Lavova, Christina McPhee, Muzi Lee Rowe, Xenia Smith, and Angela Willits. So if you're attending, you can maybe unmute your microphone and just chime in, say a few things like your name and uh, what uh, medium you're working with. I think for the artists who are going to giving, be giving talks, maybe we could hold off on you um, talking about your practice, but if you just want to say hi, let people see who you are and maybe wave, say your name, that'd be great. Chris Herman is here. <laughs> Hi, I'm Christina. Muzi. Forrest Alaya. Angela Willits. Senya Smith. Hi, everyone. I'm Mercy Hawkins. Philip Baker. Great. Thank you, everybody. Uh, happy to be working with you. Super excited about this project. It definitely extended my um, learning. Like, you know, I'm out of grad school, got two master's degrees, but I was pulling all-nighters uh, to get this to come together. And I think after, one day after it launched, it had already been um, published um, I think I think I got it where I felt I could be happy with, with uh, the site. So happy to be working with you all. Thank you for your submission. Um, we're going to go into some talks now. Um, I've invited uh, four artists to give talks about their work. They're going to be um, sharing their screen and giving um, some presentations along with discussing their practice. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to introduce uh, Chris Herman. Going first again, just like the last time. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, can everybody see that? Yeah. All right. All right. So um, <clears throat> my practice has been based on a street art campaign that I did in Los Angeles in the early 2000s. And when I say street art campaign, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It involves uh, stickers, stencils, posters, um, going out late at night when no one's looking and finding uh, you know, a prime location where it's in view to either traffic or foot traffic, whatever. And uh, basically put up a poster, a stencil, wherever I can to gain as much exposure as I can. So here are a few examples of that street art campaign. And this is in front of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And these were all in uh, Mid Wilshire, if you're familiar with the Mid Wilshire area. It's uh, south of, of Hollywood and just above South Central. This was in Koreatown. So 
you can kind of get an idea when I say street art. And that's in Melrose. So in 2014, I had uh, moved back to, to California and resided in Sacramento. And uh, I became anxious to start working again, but I didn't have any idea what to do. So I went back to these faces that I had abandoned probably about eight years uh, previously and uh, just started making these simple little uh, two, three, four color uh, stencil paintings. They're probably about uh, 11 inches by 13 inches. They're real small. And um, it, it's kind of like screen printing in a way, but I'm not actually using a screen print. And, and the stencils are all cut out of cardboard and uh, I'm using a, acrylic paint. So I assemble a number of uh, separations and uh, apply the paint and separations. And it's basically no registration. If it, doesn't, if it doesn't register, the piece is pretty much lost unless I can kind of over-register it. And so that's what these pieces are here. These are examples of those one to two, three color uh, paintings based on the street art that I had done in Los Angeles. And that's more of a study than it is an actual final composition. Same thing with that one. So in 2016, I got a studio at a place that's now defunct, but it was called Panama Pottery. And in Panama Pottery, I started working on larger surfaces. And this piece in particular here, I believe is 28 by 41 and it's on wood. So I had to create, um, a large stencil that size and uh, put it together with basically um, Xerox paper and 11 by 17 sheets and then glue it down and cut out this enormous stencil and then start applying paint. And uh, this time I chose to go with a pattern instead of a solid, a solid uh, separation. And I just kind of just mixed it up and just had fun. And it actually turned out pretty well. I liked the, the texture underneath the face and just the, the, the texture of the wood and the gesso and then the strokes from the paint and it actually turned out well. So this next couple of series, this is an example of these larger paintings of those faces on wood. And that one's got like multiple registration because the, it went down with the silhouette of the faces, then the facial features came in and then the eyes came in. And so, Luckily, it, it, they all went into place because if I screwed one up, then they were all screwed up and I'd have to start over and trying to patch it. So it was more of a, a labor of, of, of process than, than necessarily artistic, you know, but I like it. Another large stencil on wood with the, the pattern and the, the, the texture underneath of the strokes. Another more, more of the faces, same thing. So when I was working on wood, I put a bunch of them together. I put three of them together and I got this huge, enormous painting. And I think this one is like 77 by 39. And so I thought, you know, why paint on just these tiny little boards when I can get this huge triptych surface together? And so I, I put this one piece together and this was right around the election in 2016. And uh, I guess, subconsciously I put my emotions into it and it's it's kind of chaotic and it, it has almost an, an apocalyptic feel to it and if you if you stare at it long enough you can 
pick up all the different messages. There's, there's lots of protest in there. Um, there's actually warfare in there as well. So um, anyway, that's where that is. And that's just more of the same, of putting the, the, the smaller surfaces together to make one giant composition. So in uh, 2019, I got a grant, my first grant, and I rented a space uh, downtown. Um, it was called Recluse Art. And so still using my stencils, uh, I decided to kind of mix it up a little bit and use some smaller paintings because I didn't have a lot of space in the studio to do the really big paintings. So still experimenting with uh, stencils, I started incorporating miscellaneous pieces of paper. Um, you know, the tea wrapper from my tea. Uh, there was a, a biblical reference in a frame that I had that I was going to paint and I tore it up and I painted that. I think it says Matthew 9.23 or something like that. Uh, there's a section of, um, what is the, uh, what is the series about the, the children who want to be, uh, magicians? I can't think of the name of it. Harry Potter. There's a sheet in there from Harry Potter. And so I've got all these different things. It's like a little collage of texture and just miscellaneous things. It's, it's just something I did that was, that was fun that kind of came together without any thought. And, um, I, I came up with a, what, what I thought was a clever title. It's called um, uh, Mongolia uh, de facto C, which stands for, um, at one time, black tea in Mongolia used to be considered a currency. So it's kind of a play on words because I've got the Tazo black tea in there. And so it's just one of those random things that make you think about it. And so, and that's what these next ones are an example of just more of the, the miscellaneous pieces of paper with some paint strokes and just having fun, enjoying the, the texture of the gesso. And these are small paintings on 16 by 20 stock. That's actually my son's drawing. He did this tiny little robot and I turned it into a stencil. And that's where I came to this. This is, more, this is more an incorporation of all those things that I just showed you. And uh, that's where I am. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, does anybody have any questions or anything they're curious about? I think I went over my five minutes. Sorry. <laughs> Everybody's still awake? <laughs> Hello? Yeah, I'm just hoping my, uh, my kids don't run out of the room. Right. I was like trying to manage uh, having a, a reception in the next room while my four-year-old, nine-year-old, and two-year-old are sleeping. Uh, oh. Luckily, uh, my two-year-old stopped screaming shortly before the meeting. So It's always that way. I've got four kids. My my fourteen year old had a meltdown just before uh, just before eight o'clock, and my wife wasn't too happy about it. So I thought, great, I'm going to have to do this somewhere else. <laughs> I'm curious about the recluse. Is is that um, studio space still uh, 
operational? Are there are they still renting spaces? Uh, no, no. Un unfortunately, it 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 ended. It was it was too good to be true, and I I enjoyed it while I was there. And I I, I you know. I haven't worked in very many places, but there was a lot of good energy in that place. And it was one of those studios that because of the other artists and the other people that were working there, there was a lot of positive energy. And I really, I don't know if most people are aware of this, but when you work around other people in an environment like that, you absorb their energy and uh, it has an effect on your work. And so you can see the effect that it had on my work there. And I, I was really surprised because I don't know where uh, the influence came from the work that I was able to generate. So I was, I was really pleased with that space and I was really sad to see it go. Yeah. Uh, I've been involved in a, a location like that where it was, it was good energy for me there. There wasn't really a lot of people practicing there, but it was a usable space, pretty big, big space. And I got a lot of work done there, but ended up going under and, I think I moved out shortly after that happened, uh, but those things happen. Yeah. Yeah. I used to enjoy the space because when I had it to myself early in the morning, everybody else was uh, probably in their twenties or they worked during the day and I work in the evening. So I would come in in the morning and have the whole place to myself. And I had the music going through the whole place as loud as it could be. <laughs> no one knew. So. So, Arts is now the, the print shop where I work. <laughs> yeah, it was a print shop and then it turned into Recluse and now it's a print shop again. <laughs> so, Interesting. Yeah. So we're going to go into our next talk. Uh, we have uh, Christina McPhee, uh, who is going to talk about her work and present some images. So I'm going to yeah. mute my... Hang on. Okay. Okay. Are you guys, can you see it? Very good. Can you see the image? Yes. Yes. Okay, good. So I, I am not talking about the work that's in the, the, on the online show. Um, because I don't, have a concept I don't have a sort of a concept around it it's more like it's just been kind of a formal uh, interesting kind of exploration and it's just in its baby stages so I thought I would show you something that I recently completed that's a body of work that I started at the U Cross Foundation in November um, of 2019 and um, my actually my studio the next studio over was someone who's also I think here tonight Noah Green um, so in this body of work, it, I actually was interested in trying to um, address a, um, a return that I was making to the, the edge of the Great Plains where I had grown up. And basically there were some, I have traumatic, some traumatic memory issues, um, abuse issues that go, go back to that space and I, I the 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 actual Ucross ranch is 20,000 acres on the edge of the Great Plains at, at the edge of the mount of the Rocky Mountains so it's extremely beautiful and it's really a broken kind of broken mesas and hidden terrains 
It's a very complicated environment, very, very beautiful. And um, this place, it, oh, I, what, once I was there for a, about a week, I realized that what I could do, I wanted to invite, sort of in a, in a way, invite my, um, myself back into the space with using drawing as an act of hospitality to, my, to myself. Also acknowledging the, um, the presence of the indigenous um, culture there um, I had a chance to work with in the in the, the fourth week I was there. I had a chance to work with some uh, young women from the Sheridan Women's School, which is um, like a place where kids, women, young women from like all over, but there are considerable number of Crow and Lakota kids were there. Who and it's like a, it's like a kind of like a reform school. So they have a great art program and they were coming over to our, to the ranch to um, work with some of the artists. So I did do that, but I wanted to actually in, um, acknowledge and, and the um, sort of first nations aspect of that place. Um, and to, especially to focus on Lakota, the Lakota principle of, of um, hospitality through um complex negotiating of difficult terrain of complex human relationships. And it's sort of one, one scholar has described this as the, the signal characteristic of the Lakota culture, which is shape shifting. So there's a principle or a, a culture hero. You could, I guess you'd say in Lakota that's called Inktomi. And that's the, he's, it, it's a kind of a principle of, of that's like trickster, but not with a negative connotation necessarily. Uh, could could have that, but also could not. Might maybe not. So I was really interested in this idea of transformation, alch alchemical transformation. How could I invite myself back into a place of that was dangerous for me psychically, and at the same time, um, sort of be healed by it, and also acknowledge the suffering of the people that have been there all this time. And continue to do so. It's one of the worst areas for, it's one of the toughest parts of the, the United States in terms of uh, Native American girls disappear on the regular in that immediate area. So it's just a, it's a super violent, scary environment for a lot of people. Uh, not for us, those of us that were lucky enough to be there, it was like extremely cushy and it's a great re artist residency. I can't speak highly enough of, of it. But anyway, I decided to order in some paper um, after my first couple weeks of study there. And, um, and then I, this is a purple uh, Japanese Kozo paper that I, um, I basically is handmade in Japan. It's about 42 by 77 inches. So they're huge sheets. They're, the weight is about, is 30, I think it's 35 uh, grams per square meter. So it's it's a moderate it's moderately sturdy, but as you can see, it can buckle. So the you can kind of see here the um, the way that the um, paper uh, basically accommodated these marks, which are made with entirely with um, metallic shellac-based inks. Some some not all the inks were metallic, but a lot of them were. And I used a, a very, very limited palette. So a lot of the color comes from refraction 
like in in this example there's no gr there's no green ink in this piece it's just that the the blue and the gold kind of refract against one another and create these glows. So as you can imagine, the, these photographs, from my perspective, they suck, even though they're the best I could do because the actual works are really so iridescent and complicated visually that they are sculptural and they don't record well. But anyway, when I, I so that was mainly the, the idea of working on this and I got about, I, I finished. I was able to finish about three of them when I and when I got back to California. I ordered the rest of the paper that they had. It was a discontinued paper from Los Angeles, and I I just started uh, working like crazy for another six weeks through January and into February. And in the meanwhile, I contacted a couple of curators in LA that I knew probably would really be would resonate to this work and. One of them offered me a show, so I was like, great, let's do it. it and the work had also had a, um, a kind of co complex relationship to spirituality and religion, um, partly through the Lakota religion practices, but that I was reading about, not, not directly experiencing. But also, um, I had been for the last year been reading uh, these very strange um, enigma poems by uh, a Mexican Baroque poet named um, Sister Juana Inez de la Cruz, who's very very famous. She's on like the currency and the stamps and stuff in 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 Mexico. Um, but she wrote these very very complicated short poems. They're like the length of a tweet, really. There and I had come in, I'd come into contact with an amazing um a really amazing translation into english that really created a rough kind of anglo-saxon raw version of the very sort of convoluted and refined spanish and i just loved it so i thought i would name each of these pieces after a line in sister juana's poems so in this one it's called um its origin uh snowflakes um, I think that's what this one is. Hang on. No, this one is called Captivating Reason. And then this one's called Bowing Like, Bowing Like a Star or Bowing Like a Star. It's not clear to me which is meant by that. But you can kind of see how the, the work, I did a lot of intense layering. There's kind of like a weird effect of calligraphy of strange animation characters or possibly a and there's a grotesque quality all of which is kind of also in sister Juana's poems um, this is the one that's called um, bowing like a star I mean I'm sorry this is called uh, its origin snowflakes and by the way, Sister Juana doesn't tell you what, whose origin or what she's, to whom is she referring. So it's, it's left up to you to, to try to puzzle this out, which has then meant that the last 400 years, people have just been poring over these poems and trying to figure out what they mean. They're, they're really notorious for that. Um, and then the sequela to that piece is after its origins, snowflakes, the next line is uh, its descendants, the fire. So descendencia el fuego. So this one was, this is one of the first, this is one of the pieces I did at 
at UCROSS. Um, here's a detail, and I could try to zoom. This is a, a, a PDF that's not really a print quality PDF, it's a screen PDF, so it's gonna, it's, as you, it's probably gonna start degrading a little bit as I zoom in. Not too bad, it's, you can kind of get a sense of the extreme articulation. But anyway, I think that for me, the, the experience was one of a tremendous uh, release from a lot of um, sort of personal history issues and at the same time getting me in touch with uh, my tremendous love of, of uh, very uh, strange topographies and nature often seems grotesque to me in a way that is I love and is, is, a, is a source of amazing and wonder to me. I think growing up on the Great Plains, I didn't have a lot, a lot of other things to do. Um, I didn't have, you know, complicated, a complicated social schedule. It was kind of like my life right now. I, I live in the country in California and I'm just out here drawing and painting. And that was kind of what my childhood was like, although I had a miserable time in school. But outside of school, I had a great time. So this is kind of like, it got me in touch with those, that child, those childlike impulses. And has then, and so it was like the perfect moment for this to happen, this body of work. And I finished it just in time to hang it in Pasadena with my wonderful friend, um, Mike Hernandez, at Irenic Projects, which is in, at a church in uh, Pasadena. And it's a beautiful, beautiful late 40s modernist space. And the, the artwork is not necessarily religiously related um, that he curates there. Um, and so if it ever opens up again, it's a, it's a great place to consider showing if you feel like it. Um, it's not a, definitely a nonprofit kind of thing, an experimental space. So um, yeah, so it, it, it was a perfect timing because then what, now when I'm in, now that I'm in um, quarantine, I've just found that I'm in on a tremendous role and it's everything that a residency, you'd want a residency to do to sort of give you a shot in the arm. Um, and now I'm doing oil paintings and they're complicated and they don't look like these. They're a different aesthetic, but they, they are, they have the same kind of urgency and strangeness about them. So I'm very, I'm very happy with that. That's kind of what I wanted to say. Oh, and I should, I should plug the, I don't know if I got it here. Yeah, I do. Um, so I made a book if you that is available via blurb, but it's, that's, there's an artist statement and whatnot that is related to this body of work and, and to this particular show. And the, the wonderful translation is this, um, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong thing. Um, I've got two, I've got two monitors here, so I'm compl it's complicated. And I'm sorry, this is probably backwards for you guys. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it's um, Sinal Press. Stalina Villarreal is the, the uh, translator, if you get interested, if you're interested in the literature side of it, it's just an amazing little book. So that's it for me. Thank you, Christina. That was great. Sure. My I've pleasure. enjoyed checking these out online, of course, and they're very mysterious. Right. Mm. Yeah, they're actually, yeah, if you go to my website, christinamcfee.net, it's the first thing you'll run into are these, these mm -hmm. drawings. Mm -hmm. Does anyone want to ask any questions? Um, I do. Or, yeah. I have a quick question. 
Is the paper purple to begin with? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a really difficult to photograph plum maroon color that kind of shifts from, talk about shape shifting, it kind of goes from looking like a, an indigo purple to a red violet. It's just right on the edge. It just keeps flipping and it, at a very, very close range, you can't see it in this photograph, but there are very minute strands of black in it. It's, it's an incredible paper. So I, I, apparently it takes two people to make each sheet. So it's discontinued. I got it for half price from Hiromi paper in Santa Monica. Yeah. Um, how did you present it when you showed it? Did you put it in? Oh, I'm happy to show you that. I forgot. I'm sorry. Um, it's right here. You can kind of see it. These are little, it was very, it's a space that's very hard to shoot because it's a, it was an, a, a, a it's kind of like a, an extended broad hallway that's bigger than a hallway, more like a, a an atrium. And it's, and it's all structured in an S, it's an S curve for in plan, this space is an S curve. And then it has a spiral staircase. So you can kind of see uh, right here and there's a piece hanging up in there. So what we did was hang them both on flat on the wall and then it's suspended. So Mike Hernandez um, did this wonderful thing where he, we, we did, um, we just put magnets and uh, uh, we used magnets for the ends to um, hold a uh, wire to the ceiling. And then this is just a freestanding, this is with MDX, whatever you call it, MDX, I think it's called the, the sort of particulate board. He just made these little barriers here so that it, it just marks off the space so that, it, that no one would sort of stumble into the, the, the drawings. So, but they don't, it does, it has all, it has an optical function, this, this thing. Okay, but, so it's suspended from the ceiling? Yeah, they're suspended from the ceiling, except for some of them are, oh, there's maybe th three of them that are on the wall. And the ceilings are not super high. They're probably nine feet. They're not, it's not a super tall space. But it's 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 an interesting space because it's a meander, so it's it's it creates this opportunity to do to set these um, pieces in these cantilevered at uh, unfoldings. So you discover the these kind of intricate the, all this intricacy that you see in the that you're seeing here. Like th this is a good example of how the photographs I shot for the catalog don't even show how amazing the this weird see how that's all articulated in like a low relief effect and that lower relief effect came out from hanging it in this kind of slanted natural light situation does that kind of give yeah that's that's interesting how you hung it i like the way you hung it <coughs> thank you yeah i was really happy because it I mean, these pieces are really not, they're the, it's like drawing into sculpture. They're not really, um, although I, when I got back, I immediately started working on a, I, I have a show coming up in, in the win next winter in San Francisco and I'm, I'm preparing a body of work in, in oil painting on canvas. So I went to that, you know, as soon as I finished the set, which was uh, at the end of, 
kind of the third week of February, right, really right before the, we opened the show and it was like two weeks later that it, it shut down. So, so I mean, it's still up, the work is still up. It's still up. And I think it's by appointment theoretically, but I don't really think people can actually go there. I mean, they, they could, if they broke the law or something, I guess. Thank you, Christina. Sure. We're going to move on. Uh, Muzi, if you could, um, Exit your screen share. Thank you. We're gonna head over to Muzi Lee Rowe, who's gonna talk about her work and share some images. One second. Oh. Okay. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, I can hear okay. you and okay. see your presentation. All right. Um, so, my name is Muzi Lee Rowe. I am a mixed media artist and a photographer. So, basically, in a nutshell, I make objects and I take photographs, and sometimes I combine the two. Um, my work is primarily about perception and technology. I um, incorporate a lot of found objects into my process. I use things um, like optics and electronic waste into my work. So um, I made this work when I was in uh, graduate school. I started making cameras and um, Oh, this headphone's weird. Um, so this camera is made from um, cell phone lenses and some scrap wood. So the idea was to um, build an analog camera with cell phone lenses. And I wanted to take photographs with such cameras. Um, so I, I made a few more cameras in the process and this is another one that I made. It is um, built around a medium format film back with three interchangeable lens boards. And um, on each lens board, it, uh, there's a grid of lenses and each lens that is um, taken from a used smartphone. So in comparison to the first camera, I made this one is modular. I was able to um, make multiple exposures with each lens board and I was able to shoot an entire roll of film. Um, so it provided a lot more flexibility when it comes to um, making photographs. So um, after quite a few experimentations with, you know, making photos, I realized that the object itself is, is the thing that I was, I was searching this entire time. And this is a, a installation shot of um, this camera at my thesis show. So um, at the time I was thinking a lot, a lot about plant obsolescence and 
the circulation of manufacturing, advertising, consumption, waste, and it goes back to manufacturing. And in a way, um, it's not so much about taking a photo with a DIY camera, but the, the materials and the, the, the process, the labor that goes inside into making the work. Um, you know, in fact, that I bought all these phones on eBay and took them apart and put them together into another camera. That's sort of a part of the work. Okay, moving on. Um, while I was making those cameras, I also started another series where I made phone portraits um, using wet plate collodion tintype which is a 19th century photography technique. It was invented around uh, 1850s. And basically, instead of a film, uh, you make the image on a plate. Usually, um, when it comes to tintype, it's an aluminum plate. And it's um, coated with collodion and sensitized in silver nitrate. And once the plate is sensitized, you need to make the exposure, develop, fix, before the chemistry um, dries out, hence the name, wet plate. Um, so I, um, the, 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 this series was um, really just a reflection of my disoriented perception toward the exponential development of technology. So when I'm looking at a phone from 10, 20 years ago, it has this antique quality that is somewhat similar to an old photograph, like a tintype, which is more than 100 years old. But at the same time, I do recognize that this is a piece of modern technology that just has gone obsolete very fast. So um, there's something kind of absurd about it. So in 2019, I made a series of projectors using camera lenses. And um, these are some flawed lenses that I've been collecting throughout the years. Some of them are just simply very cheaply made and some of them are broken and moldy. And I like the idea of, you know, salvaging materials for art making. And um, this one is a little bit different. Uh, this, this is a moving projector that has a, uh, motor attached to the back and all these projectors they're um, they're modular the lenses they can be um, swapped and you can like flip them and the projections can be altered in scale I included a video of the moving projection so um, last year I had a solo exhibition at, at a um, 
space called TGTG here in Sacramento. And here's a video clip of the moving projection. Okay, I'm just gonna turn it off. Here's a still image of the um, installation. So the idea was that um, I made a series of photographs and drawings that were very personal to me at the time. And I wanted to um, show them in a space in an intangible form. So I decided to just place five projectors in this dark space, projecting both moving and still imagery. Here's another view of the um, same installation. So I, I see this work as a, a contemplative installation that investigates the subconscious. So um, I had the opportunity to have a couple of drawings shown at AML space. So apart from other things that I do, drawing has always been a, a big part of my practice. It's, it's almost like a studio medication, meditation that I do on a regular basis. Um, late last year, I began experimenting with um, ink on transparent materials like acetate. I'm very fascinated by the shadows that the drawing cast onto different kinds of surfaces. And currently I am trying to incorporate more drawing elements into my photography and installation work. And that's the end of my presentation. Thank you, Muzi. Uh, does anyone have any questions? want to address any of the work that Muzi shared with us? I don't really have a question, but it, it's really, it's, it's fascinating work. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Great. Um, I want to just chime in on the rest of our program. So Xenia Smith is going to give a short talk then Joy Miller is going to read her curator statement. Philip Rubaker is going to give a short talk and read an excerpt from The Waffler. And we've been joined by Boris Alanou. So I think maybe after Philip's talk, we can just say hi, ask any questions that we want to ask, and we'll go right into Derek's um, statement and Boris's talk and performance. So uh, without hesitating any further, Xenia, do you want to take the wheel? Everybody, let me just get my screen. Everybody see that? Wait, hold on. Yes. Yeah, it's up. Okay, cool. So this first piece, this is one of the pieces that I submitted to the art space. Um, I guess to start, I'm really a screen printer by profession. That's like my day job, but I've always liked painting and that's usually what I'm doing in my free time. And this, this one is one of my first oil paintings that I 
completed about a year ago. And it basically just sparked this series that I did that I just called my summer series. And it was really just working with this color palette. Um, this is another one. This is also oil. And then this one, zoom out a little bit. This one is actually on um, wood and I didn't paint this, I used a squeegee to make this one. Um, and then this is the other piece that I submitted. And this is um, more of like a still life, which when I was younger, I always really wanted to be like a still life painter. And so this was kind of the first piece that I've done in a long time in this style. So it's another favorite of mine right now. Um, this one, this is actually acrylic. This one's kind of old. This is a couple from a couple of years ago. And then I wanted to show you guys these screen prints. Um, there we go. This is some really recent work that I've done. And I have um, a background in photography um, and a lot of film photography. So I've started incorporating that into what I print in my free time. So this is a photograph, a film photograph that I've taken and I just prepped it so that I could screen print it. So it's, it's a three color, but it's really, it's printed as a two color. So this background is two colors that I put in the screen and it's called like a split fountain. And then I printed my photograph over that. And there's another one. I don't know why it's so small. There we go. So that's just another version of the same photograph. And there we go. And here's another one. So um, I just wanted to touch back on recluse arts that Chris was talking about earlier because that's kind of how I got my grounding as an artist in Sacramento. I've only been here a few years, I guess like four years now, but um, I kind of helped start Recluse Arts and that was where I had my first studio and it was a really cool space, but you know, we, we lasted a couple years, but now it's a print shop, which is where I work. Um, Here's one more. Here we go. So yeah, that's basically it. <laughs> Thank you, Zinnia. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I'd actually, uh, I think I found like a posting for Recluse online when there were still artists there. Um, I, I was, like I was saying before, I was involved in another project called My Studio, had a really bad name, 
but it was in a big warehouse that used to be operated by uh, Tina's and Tina's actually moved into the warehouse next door. Tina's was a, a rummage store. Um, and so when I was working at the studio, I'd be like the only one there in the warehouse and my studio was like a 10 by 10 cage, but they had large work tables and I often work outside of the cage, obviously. Um, but I think, uh, you know, Verge Center for the Arts being the major uh, art center in town, uh, providing studios and um, other studio spaces as far as collective spaces coming and going because of, you know, economic downturn or lack of funding or resources. Um, I think, I think it's hard to maintain those spaces. You know, that's why it's good yeah. to have Verge right now. That's, Absolutely. it's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this project because it's not really dependent on brick and mortar. Brick and mortar is like, so bound to uh, their lease agreement that, you know, let's say there is a national emergency. It's like, what are you gonna do? Rent still due. I'm a member at um, Access Gallery. We cooperatively present exhibitions um, and basically we're paying rent on our, on our, on our dues, on our, on our um, money that we collectively uh, earn for the gallery. Um, so, we basically have about till the end of the year worth of rent before we can't make payments. Um, so hopefully things turn around, yeah. but, um, moving on, I want to bring joy back into the mix. Who's going to give her statement and introduce Philip. Hey everyone. I, um, I want to introduce Philip Brubaker. He is a writer and filmmaker in Florida, living in Florida right now. And his short story that is in Love and Isolation is called The Waffler. It's deeply, wonderfully weird in the way that only trusting honesty can produce, in a way that helps a reader make a home for their own deeply wonderful weirdness. The sentences say nothing more than what they say and therefore offer ample space for a reader to wobble in ambivalence about the narrator, ironic or sardonic, and about the chain of events which are shared in an effortless toggling back and forth in time and the many tenses that time keeps. The story's sense of wandering around awake in a world that is not the world learned from one's family of origin is bewildering here, unrecognizable or perhaps with luck prompts recognition of such dissonance. So without further ado, Philip. Thanks, Joy. <clears throat> um, so this piece, The Waffler, it's kind of more about isolation than love, I would say, but there's a little bit of both kind of at play. And I'm gonna read an excerpt from the story. This is in media res. So here we go. When I went to college, I was a virgin. My strategy for getting dates was this. Maybe if I'm super nice to her, she'll have sex with me. I had many female friends in school and I had crushes on nearly all of them. I wasn't friends with them only because I had crushes on them. That was just an added bonus, a torturous, frustrating added bonus. 
I was a freshman in film school, my dream place. Well, let's say my second tier dream place because New York University turned me down. One night, Brian Moore, who was a Pisces, and me, a Pisces, and Clint Smith all decided to go to Waffle House one night after school. We ate waffles, we drank juice, and we were on our way to a party. Somehow, Brian got the attention of two blonde girls who were sitting together at the bar of the Waffle House. I couldn't hear what he said to them, but after I got into his truck, when we headed out, he told me he had invited them to the party and the girls turned him down. But suddenly, I heard a shout from outside in the parking lot. Brian and I looked and saw one of the girls standing there next to the truck. How'd you boys like to come home with us? Brian turned to look at me. For someone who I assumed was still a virgin, he seemed pretty cool at the prospect of having sex with possibly two pretty blonde girls. What do you think? He asked me. I don't have any condoms, I whispered loudly. So, he replied. You want to? I said. I mean, what else are we going to do? He said. Then, almost unilaterally, he turned to the window and said, Sure. Okay, y'all follow us, she said. My mind was scattered, my heart was smothered, but Brian had it covered. We were on our way to getting laid. Meanwhile, Clint was in his own car, following us as we followed the two girls. Clint probably wasn't aware of the change in plans. We ended up driving to a modular home. The three of us hopped out of the cars and the two girls led us inside. My mind was racing. Were their parents home? Were they even sisters? Would they let me have a three-way with them? The five of us naturally settled in the living room. The guys plopped down on a couch on one side of the room and the girls sat in individual easy chairs on the other side. I'm Misty, said the one I was more attracted to. I'm Tiffany, the other girls said. How old do y'all think we are? Misty asked us. Uh, I don't know, 18, said Brian. We're 15 years old, she gleefully announced. And that's where I'm going to stop. Uh, kind of a cliffhanger there. So you can read the rest of the story uh, online. Um, so in addition to being a writer and being a filmmaker, um, I do a lot of work with video essays. And I used to do that professionally. And then I kind of do it as a hobby now. So I wanted to show you guys my um uh i guess workspace where i do uh my editing i use adobe premiere and let's see here do that okay good so um with with the writing and with the filmmaking i tend to uh focus on nonfiction, uh but also kind of hybrid with uh, experimental and narrative genres. And so what I'm working on right now, video wise, is a, um, a video essay about cinema and how the internet has changed cinema and what, how has internet changed cinema and uh, how internet culture can kind of seep into how we consume it and, and, uh, and edit it. And so what I'm doing in this clip right here is I, I noticed that the films Raging Bull and Barton Fink had um, scenes in rings, like boxing or wrestling rings, uh, and they were moments of uh, flashing light and um, uh, very variable frame rates. And I thought if I can somehow kind of combine them, 
and edit them together so it looks like they're both part of the same clip, then that could be a starting point to, uh, to kind of experiment basically. And, and then things tend to kind of come out from there. And so another example on, in the timeline of internet culture kind of seeping into film culture is um, I kind of created a meme um, out of these clips that I got off the internet where uh, this guy has like cut his wrist ostensibly as an experiment to see if sharks respond to the blood and um, the sharks circle him and I call them the true cinephiles and then the blood seeping out of the wrist is hard to find cinema. So this is something that I'm kind of like, it's on my canvas as it were that I'm just kind of exploring and there's lots of other stuff here on this, in this program that I'm working on. But um, uh, if anybody's interested in more of what I do and where you can find me, this is my Twitter page. Uh, my handle is at lens underscore itself. I think if you just search my name, Philip Brubaker, I'm like the first one that pops up. Um, and you can find links to work that I've done, writing or, or videos, et cetera. Um, and you can just kind of stay in contact if you're so inclined. So um, I'll go ahead and uh, yield my time. And if anybody has any questions, um, let me know. I have, you, Philip. I have a quick question for you, Philip. Mm -hmm. um, your writing work seems really different from your film editing work. And I'm wondering how they, if they seem like totally different things to you or if, I mean, I know you say that they're similar processes, but your content's really different. The content is different. I mean, and this is maybe not the most representative sample of, of of my work, but um, the thing the thing that they do have in common, I'll start there, the things that they have in common is that they both use the same mode, which is the keyboard and, and the screen. So I use my laptop to, to write and also to edit video. And so I kind of learned how to like, how the keyboard can be an extension of my own thoughts um, and by typing words or by using hotkeys to edit video. So that's how they, that's what they have in common. But the, yeah, they're, they're different. I think that I turn to writing for different reasons than when I turn to editing video. And um, I think with the video, there's more of kind of an affect to what I do. There's a little bit more experimenting and, and a little bit more playing than there is with writing. I think I take writing more seriously and it's, it's a lot simpler in my mind because it's just like one voice that I have to deal with and kind of channel. And with, uh, with the filmmaking, you're juggling many different aspects, you know, like picture and sound to be like in general. Um, and also with the videos, the videos that I make are mostly some kind of a reaction to, to movies. So they're kind of like film criticism uh, in some ways, whereas like the, uh, the writing is often just off the top of my head and 
more maybe more of a truer, purer self-expression um, than than kind of the the manipulation of, of video and, and sound. Um, but yeah, so that's maybe one way to kind of reconcile why I'm interested in both and, and what I do with both. But does that answer your question? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Philip. Thank you. Uh, Boris, you online. Derek, you ready to represent? Sure. So uh, I met Boris around the same time I met Tavares. Uh, and we had a we had the pleasure of like improvising a bit, and we've also talked about a sound ecology a lot, which he's uh, really into and studied at school. Um, it's really about uh, sound environments, and uh, I suppose like the preservation of sound environments and what they mean, uh, how we relate to these sound environments. Uh, it could be like natural sound environments, like uh, birds and trees and rainforests and whatnot, but not necessarily. And I think it's more about like how we relate to all these things. And so uh, this piece that uh, Boris has uh, for uh, the, the space called Garden, I think it's uh, really related to um, this sort of thing. It's sort of like a COVID kind of piece. Um, where it's like really uh, portraying like uh, like domestic settings. Um, you can hear like uh, cabinets uh, close and uh, dishes clatter and birds and cars in the distance. And um, it's also about like, I suppose like, um, like uh, the attitudes of sound ecology and the related uh, soundscape movement. It's like really, capturing uh, this domestic environment, like uh, taking a photograph in time, but with sound. And uh, there's a, so all these like bird singing, uh, cars driving by, uh, and like uh, leaves rustling, we all kind of like a speckled, um, speckled in there, but there's two through lines that really like tie the whole piece together and it's, uh, there's this drone it's almost like tonal-ish in a way and it's kind of like just sitting there like for creating it, like this like warm blanket that's really nice and also there's um I actually I actually thought it was like a, a keyboard clacking but then I read a Boris's uh, words on a piece a little closer and it's actually um these uh boxes he made uh that uh it was for a uh, uh Davis uh, installation where he gave people boxes and they had like little, um, like uh, there are solenoids, which has like this little pull that uh, comes in and out and you can make it like hit various objects like uh, like walls or pipes or whatever. And it's all about like um, listening to the world around you, much like uh, this piece. So these, uh, this, uh, what I used to think was a keyboard clacking. Um, it's like, it forms like this rhythmic uh, layer that goes throughout the entire piece along with the drones. But it starts out like rather uh, sporadic and sparse, but it, then it keeps building and building and like, um, it gives like the 
piece of ice, a nice flow. And so it's pushing the piece towards like the very end. And then you, it drops off and you hear uh, leaves rustling with a, like a nice resolution. So um, yeah, you should all check it out if you haven't done so already. And I think Boris should uh, talk right now. Is he muted? Boris, we can't hear you. Uh-oh. Oh, okay. Is that better? Gotcha. Yep. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> so yeah, I was just saying hello and um, thank you, Tavares, for the invite. Thank you, Derek, for the little introduction. That was what I was about to say, basically. <laughs> Um, so yeah, just maybe I'm going to present myself. Uh, I'm Boris. I'm from France. I'm a sound artist. I do mainly sound installation, performance and workshops. And uh, I try to question the field of uh, sound ecology, uh, which is basically how do we interact with sounds? How um, how do we create different layers of sounds and how do sounds influence our moods and emotions and it's really it's a huge field to explore that's what's interesting about it um, so yeah one of the direction of my artistical research is to explore the soundscape so basic or the we can say also the sonic ecosystem uh, so to me there's roughly three different layers in this soundscape um, the natural one which is like the bird singing the wind water and the river the urban one which is well the, the cars the phone ringing and all that kind of stuff and the third one, which is the most interesting to me, it's the creative one, or the one that I call the creative one, um, in which I, I try to participate, you know, add sound to try to understand the other two layers and to create a new ecosystem. Um, in this new ecosystem, uh, the ecological imagination, the political decisions and the social role of humanity mix to question the society, society sorry. Um, so yeah, pavillon, um, it's basically those boxes that I've built last year. Uh, those are solenoid boxes as Derek was saying, and they're made as a tool to, to explore the the environment and uh, yeah, the, the city or, or, uh, or the, the, the fields or anything basically. But um, yeah, the, they just trigger randomly a solenoid and I'm able to poke stuff around like benches, um, bike rack or uh, buildings, the ground. Yeah, add this famous third layer um so yeah that that's it for my talk and um 
I'm gonna jump up uh, to present you a brand new uh, performance that I call Open Objects. And uh, I'm gonna use those boxes and uh, found objects and do a little uh, musical intro. So thanks again for joining and inviting me and for all the, the nice talk before. That was really interesting. Thanks, Boris. Thank you. I just need like 30 seconds to change the camera and everything and...
that's it for me. Thank you. Thanks. Yes, so I think this concludes our programming for today. Um, so happy that you were able to take the time to uh, spend with us tonight. Uh, we had some really interesting talks. Um, great work was shared tonight. Uh, Art Music Lit Space uh, will be um, continuing to push uh, new programming and events in the future. Uh, Derek, Joy, and myself are um, already thinking of new ways to kind of extend our reach and programming. Um, Love and Isolation will be up until uh, June 3rd, and then we're working on the next exhibition uh, after before. So please um, be sure to check in on the site from time to time, as we will have um, updates uh, with a feature every for one month, a feature for one month, and a group show for two months. Um, just started a new Instagram art music lit space. So if you haven't already, uh, please uh, follow posts there. Um, does anyone want to have any closing comments or address any anyone uh, in the group? And Boris, I enjoyed that piece that you did. So that was that was uh, uh, enlightening, and I, I could continue to keep listening to it. It's it's almost meditative. Oh, thanks a lot, Chris. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate. It. Okay, I think that concludes our uh, reception. I hope everyone had uh, an enjoyable time. Uh, keep in touch and congratulations to everyone uh, involved in the exhibition Love and Isolation. Really would not have happened. It would have just been an idea if it wasn't for you taking the time to uh, trust your work with us and have it shared in this uh, online capacity. Um, I think moving forward, uh, we just want to expand this project further. So. Thank you for being part of the uh, debut inaugural exhibition for Art Music Lit Space. With that, everybody have a good evening. And Thank you, hope to, see you. Thank you. hope to see you soon. All right.